Hey everybody, this is Jim Lachlan, and uh, you are listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Coburn. It's an awesome show, so check it out. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Anyone that knows me personally knows I'm a huge fan of live music. And one of my favorite genres to catch live is the jam band scene because it incorporates all of that in-the-moment spontaneity and improvisation and kicks it up to its maximum potential. And tonight on My Weekly Mixtape, I'm honored to welcome Jim Lachlan, percussionist for one of my favorite jam bands on the planet, Mo, to the show. Jim, thank you so much for joining me tonight, man. Oh, right on. Thank you for uh, having me. Actual pleasure to be here. Well, Jim, I'd like to start by asking you the same question I ask all my first-time guests, and that is, what does the word mixtape mean to you? <laughs> Man, it, it reminds me of being you know, in the early 80s and sitting next to... Uh, the radio with a cassette ready to go and ready to hit record on the songs that I, that I want, especially if they are doing like countdowns or this week's top 10, all that stuff. I would just sit there and record songs, record songs off the radio. And just the mix of those songs was the first mixtapes that I had ever made it was just straight from the radio and praying that the DJ would, say the name of the song in the band just in case i didn't know what it was so i could find something new awesome well i'd like to first start by talking about the evolution of some mo songs across the band's 30 plus year history an example being spine of a dog that track was originally recorded for 1992's fat boy and re-recorded for the band's major label debut 1996's no doy and then there was a new version that was recorded for 2010's Smash Hits Volume 1 that, in my humble opinion, brings the feel and energy of a live Mo concert into the studio rendition. Can you talk about how some of the band's songs, like Spine, for example, seem to evolve over the years? It's funny because Spine of the Dog was the first Mo song that really caught my ear when they sent me that album to learn their their songs from so a lot of the progression especially from a lot of the earlier material the stuff off of um fat boy and and even head seed it really evolved kind of through having different drummers play the song and different drummers approach the song when the song was originally written it was pretty straightforward there was, wasn't really any solo breaks in it or anything like that. It was just Ray did this really cool Tom beat that, you know, he had, he had roto toms and all this stuff and it sounded pretty wild and it wasn't a traditional drum beat and the bass line, all of that came to sort of create this really unique song. And it was always a great song live, despite being one of our shorter or close to our shortest song. It just the energy behind it. Everybody had always enjoyed that song. I mean, it was the pinball machine song or, you know, <laughs> the, the title was never correct, but everybody had their own reference way to reference the song. And then I started drumming and the song evolved a little bit more. I changed the beat a little bit that it, everybody sort of settled into their parts and it really became a cohesive work. When it was recorded for No Doy, it was again another drummer 
and they were just sort of trying to catch the song again you know with a sort of new fresh look on it and it was still a really popular song even though at that point in time it was probably eight years old something like that seven eight years old and that again it went out great no doy was a really big record for the band it really hooked a lot of people there's a lot of great songs on that album and then we became a five piece when i started came back to the band as a percussionist and adding the percussion line to it we added the samba whistle a small timbali break al solo i think was extended like maybe to twice as long as it had originally been i can't remember how long the original solo section was but it was very short and when we were playing when i came back into the band and added adding all that stuff and we started playing the song even more and then it became sort of a jam vehicle as well for anything that was in the a similar key or anything like that like the big spine buster you can go from a bunch of our songs into and out of spine you can put it at the beginning at the end however you want to do it so again the song it's just a workhorse of a song for us we use it a lot we play it often and then and that last change for smash hits is pretty much that's how the song has been has been approached since then even now having nate on the song we haven't really changed the approach to the song or anything like that it's still very very similar and when we recorded that one most of the tracks when we re-re-recorded it, I should say, most of the tracks on <laughs> Smash Hits were done live. We did, most of the record is live in studio. There's, you know, a small amount of overdubbing for stuff, vocals and solos. There's a small amount of punch-ins and whatnot, like studio stuff. But most of the basic tracks for that entire record were recorded live because that was kind of the goal. And at that point in time, since then rather it's it's kind of been our goal to capture as much of our live sound in the studio as we possibly can and i remember in 2007 on warts and all volume five you had spine of a dog woven through an entire set of songs it was spine of a dog mexico plane crash spine of a dog yoda little spine of a dog and buster lasting a touch over an hour and 40 minutes for one set <laughs> yeah i mean the song works like that it has specific parts to the song and you can sort of like i said just mix it in to a bunch of different stuff and it fits fits so well obviously across <laughs> the board over the years now going back to that smash hits album being we're talking about it, and it was all done live two of my three favorite most songs of all time are redone on that album and are what I feel the definitive versions of those songs being Rebubula and Mexico, because I love hearing the extended jam sequences that were always built into the live show, finally being incorporated into studio recordings. Now, one thing I've noticed over my years of being a jam band fan is the discussion over who inherently prefers this live version or this live version of a song over their studio counterparts. And I feel like Smash Hits was the best of both worlds for Mo. In terms of studio versus live recordings, do you have a personal preference? Uh, I don't know. It's really difficult because in the studio, you get the opportunity to do things that you just can't do live. You know, the studio itself is a whole other tool. All the effects, the recording, um, how specific you can get, how 
loose you can get. You can really go in any direction that you want to in, in the studio. And I feel like we've made some great true studio records. I feel like we've made some great live records and I feel like we've made some great hybrid records. Smash Hits is definitely a hybrid type of album along with Wormwood and um, The Conch. A lot of these, like, we did as much as we can to be live in the studio for Smash Hits. We tried to keep as much of it as we can, and we also tried to frame the songs like we would in a live situation as opposed to what the studio recordings of those songs were. When we recorded Smash Hits, also I was now a part of the band, and there was a lot of percussion-heavy stuff in a lot of those songs added but they made an impact when we played the song live so we wanted to really represent that that like you said the evolution of these songs as well as you know what what we do with them live and you know if you look at wormwood and the conch we recorded a lot of those basic tracks actually came from shows like not just live in a studio but on a stage and we recorded as much as we could during shows and kept as much of that as we could and put all that together i feel like in the jam band community majority of jam band fans would rather listen to live shows than studio work because of the same reason that you said the open sections of the songs the improv solos the segues all that stuff that's happening that's the biggest appeal of this genre of music. So, you know, since the early 2000s, I would say that's kind of been a goal of ours is to try to capture as much of our live show in a studio recording as we can. And if we can't do that, we want to use as much as the studio can offer us to make this record then some of the songs some songs don't always work trying to catch a live recording of like off of the new records uh we are not normal pill vacation is a song that we needed all this the studio to record that song you know that studio version of that is and it even almost becomes difficult to reproduce live but that's the direction that that song went and we've done it a couple times live but then the world fell apart for a while <laughs> mm-hmm. so we, you know it's something we'd like to get it back but it takes you know i need um uh in that song i'm using triggers and electronic drum pad as well as playing the marimba and a couple other things and just bouncing back and forth so to re- redo that live is like i'm a very busy person in, <laughs> in a song like that it's a musical panic attack <laughs> <laughs> pretty pretty much and just the sounds that are in the song and in certain songs that we've recorded over the years, just, I think instead of an album by album basis, I would actually go by a song by song basis as to which ones I prefer studio versus live. All right. Well, let's do that from the first song. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring up the conscious studio recording because on June 11th, 2005, my wife and I were in Portland, Maine for the recording of the album at the state theater And that was the show that three songs into the set, someone pulled the fire alarm and they evacuated the entire theater into the street. 
Yeah, that was a blast. Very memorable show. But that night I got to see and hear the live quote unquote studio recordings for She, Wind It Up, The Road, and The Pit. What was the band's mindset for taking such a unique approach to a studio recording? Because usually in live recordings, and I want to think back to like the kick drum on Wormwood at the beginning of um, Not Coming Down, you can actually hear some of the crowd noise gated in the kick drum. To me, that was so unique and so memorable. I'd love to know the band's mindset behind this. Yeah, that was that was a really cool album to record. It, it it probably is the longest amount of time it's ever taken us to record anything. And it was exactly that. It was we needed to release material. We had a bunch of new songs and we'd been playing them live, all of them. And we needed to release something because it, it had been a bit since the last album. And just keeping in mind that whole concept that playing live is not only our strongest suit, it's also majority of at least what we feel our fans want to hear. So what's the best way to release an album that isn't necessarily a live album because that's can be a tightrope walk. You know, that's why those the live series is called Warts and All, because we're not making any apologies for the mistakes that are on this record. This is right. just how it is. So, you you know, you bounce that line. You can also go do something like what Rush does and record an entire tour, an entire year's worth of shows, and then whittle through and find the best versions of the songs that you want to release. But that, you know, when you're doing three-hour shows night after night after night, you end up logging a tremendous amount of material. And to go through that material would be like just a massive headache. And then there would just be a lot involved. Also getting six guys to agree that, yes, that's that song should be <laughs> on the record, that version. So we decided that we were going to record live, like actually record live. So we built a recording rig made it so we can actually track an album live while we're playing the concert. And m most of it, I would say close to 90% of it is from those two Portland shows. We have crowd noises on segues from that album of everybody chanting, be on my side, I'll be on your side. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we took a different weird stuff from the shows, a lot of the ambient room of the theater itself and just sat, the way the sound traveled just through the theater, just like reverb type of sounds that are just bled into the album throughout the whole thing. And another big thing is, you know, you get a lot of adrenaline in you and stuff when you're playing live. So tempos of songs tend to be faster. And then we get in the studio and we sort of slow things down and things, you know, to make everything click and fit. And it's slow. It, the tempo is slower or where we really feel that it should be. But we jump on everything live because we're there to have fun and have everybody have fun. So tempos are up and and that's capturing Vinny's tempos for all those songs live. All those drum tracks are live on that record. Um, there's no drum overdubs, punches, anything like he might have fixed a couple hi-hats, but it's that's really those are the tracks and it keeps the tempo up for everything. And then we even, a lot of overdubs were done in the State Theater, or there was another big room that we played that we, because so it sounded similar. 
as far as getting the guitar to sound the same between what they had to fix or whatever. But so much of that record was captured live. And it, it was a great idea. I, I you know, it'd be really nice to be able to do something like that again. But it, like I said, it took months, months, months and months to record that record. Maybe like eight months just to get everything together recording wise. Never mind artwork, like everything else that goes behind releasing a record. So it took a long time. And it's hard to commit that much time to, we don't always have that timetable to release material. You know, we, we try to do it as, as often as we can. And it gets to be a difficult thing. Like we're not an album a year band or even two years generally. There have been, we've had stretches of five years between records. But we're trying and like committing to something like that is a, you're committing to a lot of time you're committing to a lot of work and we were in a, a really good advantage at the point because bill emmons who was our monitor engineer at the time was also our engineer for two albums prior to that in the studio he worked on dither with us and uh the album before i do believe so he had been with us a long time and he's an amazing engineer he got all the sounds that we wanted. He knew how to catch everything. And he's, he let us kind of produce the record. He basically worked with us to release a re record that we wanted to release, which was awesome. <laughs> they're, they're both fantastic records. And just a small sidebar here, that June 11th, 2005 date, I actually saw you perform twice in one day because earlier that afternoon you did a show at the Ale House with Mike Rockland. It was a Rockland and Lachlan duo show. That's right. It was a unique bar because there were swing sets in the bar and people were sitting, <laughs> we were sitting on swing sets, having a drink, watching your show. And my wife and I still play Carolina rice and beans and can't stand the heat all the time. Uh, he was such an amazing time. I miss yeah. him and his music so much. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, every day I think about him every day. He was a great man and, and just a great, songwriter he just really wrote great songs when i was streaming over COVID, i, I covered as many as i can mm -hmm. get out and like I do a decent job of and they're all like all his songs just mean a lot to me it, it was difficult the first couple of years after he passed to listen to him I, I could i really couldn't but now it's it 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 break like i hear his voice again i get to hear his voice i get to hear the way he thinks and you know, I know him, obviously he's my brother. I've known him right, my whole right. life and I know him so well. And all the little jokes inside the songs, all the the comments and the, the social comments and the political comments and all that stuff that I just know because I know who he is. And then they're all just so important to me. Well, I, I just wanted to, I know that's a, it's a tough subject, but I just wanted to tell you that there's still people out there that love his music to this day and I'm are very thankful for his, his stuff. That's awesome. Actually, thank you for that. That's just great, great to hear. Changing gears here. One of the things I love so much about Mo is the fact that the band utilizes three very capable singers who could be the lead singer of just a band by themselves between Al, Rob, and Chuck, who I should add that I'm also incredibly thrilled beyond words to see Chuck back on the stage after what he's been through the last few years Oh, it warmed yeah. my heart seeing his return. It brought tears to my eyes because that's he's part of the family and not seeing him on stage was was tough, but the band really got through and did it well. 
but having him back, there's just no other way. That's amazing. In terms of songwriting, let's take a song like Haze, for example, from What Happened to the Lalas. That was written and originally sang by Al, but then in the studio, Rob recorded the album version, and it's kind of lived that way pretty much ever since. Can you talk about how the songwriting process in Mo takes place and how those kind of decisions are made? Yeah, Hayes is actually very unique as far as those decisions. Al wrote the song. He wrote pretty much the song completely. You know, when he brought it in, I added the vibraphone line, but he already had this drum machine track underneath it. So that's why like when the choruses kick in, I'm playing drum triggers on the pads, just matching Vin, just trying to thicken up the drum sound in the choruses because Al had this really cool drum loop throughout those parts, throughout the chorus sections yeah. of the parts. And I'm like, well, I really like to keep that in there and still have Vin play. So that's sort of how we work that out. And he, you know, we had played it for live for a while with, with Al singing. And when we came in to record what happened to the Lala's, we had actually hired a producer for that record. And it was the first time in a long time that we had worked with an actual producer, producer, someone who we were willing to just give control to and let them make a lot of the decisions. So we didn't become this six headed monster, you know, pulling it everybody in different ways. And it was difficult. We hadn't done it in a while. And, you know, it's, it's, as a musician, it's hard when someone tells you like, yeah, don't play that, play this. Like, it's weird, <laughs> you, <Right>. don't, <laughs> you, you know, and you have to sort of put your trust in this person and say, okay, this, this is, you know, we're trying to make a really good record and they know what they're doing. So I would just listen to them. And it was actually his idea to have Rob sing the song. He loved the song and we had recorded a couple other songs at that point in time. So he had heard everybody sing and just in his head, Rob's voice just fit the song better, the, the mood of the song and how it, I don't want to say should sound, but his voice just fit in that slot. You know, he thought that it fit in that slot better. And after recording it and stuff, and you know, then we decided, well, this is how we're going to play it. We're going to play it with Rob singing it and everything. And it sort of did. After doing it long enough, it clicked. And, you know, Rob does a great job singing the song. And, you know, Al did a great job of saying, of just stepping down and being like, yeah, Rob should sing the song. He does a great job of it. And it did really didn't bother Al. But we have other songs like Akimbo. Mm -hmm. When we wrote that, Al is another song that Al wrote most of the song. But Chuck wrote the lyrics and in rehearsal of writing the song, he Chuck sort of just came up with the vocal line, the vocal melody and a bunch of words. And so it came out that way. This is a song that Al wrote, mostly wrote that Chuck is singing. And then Who You Callin' Scared, Rob literally wrote the song for Chuck to sing. Like as Rob started writing the song on his own, he realized that he'd have a really difficult time playing this bass line and singing this song, and it's high. It was just out of his range for him to be comfortable singing, especially, you know, this was after Rob's recovery from throat cancer. So, you know, he literally came in and was like, here, these are the words, learn how to sing it. This is the melody that you're going to sing. 
<laughs> you know, it's on you. <laughs> you. You are singing the song. I'm not even going to try. So it, it comes about, most things come about in this band through different, you know, very different ways. Not every song is approached the same. Not every song gets written the same. And it, again, this is just the culmination of a bunch of guys working together for 30 years who now, we don't need a set pattern. If someone has an idea, they can either rely on the other guys to help finish that idea or they can bring a completed idea in and everybody gets it and everybody's like, okay, this is my job and this is how we're going to do it. It's still open to suggestions. People still go, what if I did this and all that? And there's no argument. No one comes in like, no, this is, <laughs> you have to do this. <laughs> that really doesn't happen. So just about everything is a cumulative effect of, of us working together. Well, this is going to be kind of a sound like a silly question, but what happened to the La La's? I've always wondered, was that title a joke in the mixing of the album? Like they mix suck a lemon and the La La's wasn't there. And somehow somebody came up and said, dude, what happened to the La La's? That's actually exactly how it happened. <laughs> uh, it's the, uh, we were listening back to um, the end of suck a lemon and John, the producer was sitting at the board and we we're listening back to it. When we get to the end, and Rob turned around. He's like, what happened to the Lala's? <laughs> and so John was like, oh, yeah, right. And rewounded it and popped it in. And there was, you know, a moment of laughter because look, it's a weird thing to say. <laughs> just a weird sentence standing on its own. And then it ended up as the album title. That's That was like, you know, one of the pinnacle moments of that record. So it ended up being the title of the album. Love it. Well, one of the songs I want to talk about from that album is a song you wrote, Chromatic Nightmare, which features an incredible vibraphone melody. And I'd love to know from a musical standpoint of writing that song, is that something where you initially write the melody on a vibraphone? Or did you write the music first and then come up with the melody like lyrics to a song? Actually, so the main melody of that song is played in the studio. It's played on a, on a xylophone. Oh, geez. Sorry. It was written on a marimba, but the vibraphone line in the, in the middle that Chuck and I play together and then Chuck solos over. Yeah. Yeah. That I had written. It was maybe a year before. I think we were doing a Westwood one, like a national radio, uh, NPR type of radio broadcast. I forget which it was one of the bigger ones. I forget which one it was. And, um, they came in and the guy asked, he's like, after we, did the show he asked me he said can you play just a couple music interludes we want to use the vibraphone for musical interludes throughout the show like coming back from commercials and stuff like that so i i was like sure and i went in and i just improved a handful of little 30 second things and one of them happened to be that and that was the one that stuck in my head and I just had it in my head for years. So when I was home and I wrote the melody for Chromatic Nightmare, and, and I brought it in and we you know, were working on the song with Mo and we needed something in the middle. It couldn't just be this weird polka thing. Mm -hmm. So I started playing that line and Chuck started matching the line with me and Vin came up with like a three, four, almost swing or a six, eight swing kind of beat for it. And everything just clicked and the chords outline themselves right there you know it's just f minor b minor really easy and we opened that section up to let chuck play over 
and it ended up being you know really the part of the song that for me stands out on that song because you have this really bizarre sort of kind of a minory weird circus tim burton thing yeah that that goes into this really nice swing you know minor swing feel for chuck to play over and he tears it up every time and then you come back into the weirdness of it and the thing that surprised me we we i wrote the song for um maybe the acid lemonade test show or something like that the same show i think vin wrote marty ma for and um you know, we, we wanted new sh- songs for the shows, and those guys wanted Vin and I to write a song, so these, this is what we came up with. And we played it a couple times after the show and stuff like that. And the producer, John, was, when we sent him all, all this new stuff, that was one of the songs he picked for the record. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? Okay. And, you know, we went in and, and recorded it, and he, like I said, it was originally written on a, on a marimba, I didn't have a marimba on the road at the time. I, I just had my vibraphone and a, and a xylophone. And I brought my marimba into the studio to record the song and everything. And he's like, no, nah, it's, it's, too, it's too big sounding. Like He's like, I want something pokey, like plinky or whatever. And I was like, I have a I could set the xylophone up and played that with a set of hard mouths. And he's like, that's it. That's the sound. And boom, it, it all, you know, that, that was one of the easier songs despite the the melody is difficult to play i have a tough time with it live sometimes it's it's not easy but that song came together just incredibly fast and we had all these huge drums and and weird percussion instruments to work in the breakdown and everything about it just worked out so well i was i'm really happy with how that one actually came out in the studio like that's a great studio version of a song really really is Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. 
Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Now, following up on something we talked about earlier, the band's different approaches to recording, and a lot of the songs, like you mentioned, for Wormwood and The Conch were road-tested songs. However, in 2007, for the Sticks and Stones album, you guys rented out a church and cathedral in New England to record, and you came up with songs like Deep This Time and Z Not Z that were written there, as well as two songs, All Roads Lead to Home and Conviction Song that were already road-tested. But for the most part, that album was all done prior to the Mo fan base hearing it. Was there a reason behind this change of mindset for this one album? Um, a lot of it was because we had never done that. That was the first time we had ever recorded a record that no one had heard yet. No one had heard any of the songs, like you said, except for the two, the two songs. And it was originally supposed to be a majority acoustic album i remember that yeah you know i had bought all these drums uh hand drums and stuff for the record and we sort of geared up and then we showed up got in set up in the church and started playing and the stuff that sort of started coming out from us jamming were really more of these kind of americana rock songs and they didn't they just worked better electric than they did with any kind of acoustic approach and the i think at least three of those songs queen of everything um deep this time and at least one other song until so all the music was played and recorded and we were just titling them rock riff number one rock riff number two (laughs) rock riff number three and then al and Rob had just sort of divided up the songs that didn't have titles and didn't have words yet. And they went and wrote the lyrics and that's where the titles of the songs even came to be. They weren't, they weren't, they didn't exist. We pretty much had the songs done from beginning to end before any lyrics were written for any of those. And they went up to their little lofts and weird places we were sleeping and wrote out (laughs) the lyrics for the songs and came in and did the did the vocals and then now all of a sudden the songs had titles and and they were done and it was it was awesome that that was another like super unique recording experience for us because of that because we had nothing we went in with nothing but two songs and came out with uh, an entire album and a solid record they're not the big jammy songs that we have and even still live they don't open up Z not z opens up a little bit but most of them are kind of played as they are we use them as segues we can get 
into and out of them easily, but the structures of those songs haven't really changed much in close to 20 years. Well, while we're on the studio thing, I want to pivot from Mo for a brief second and talk about your 2020 studio album, Below the Surface, which as a different studio setting, you wrote and recorded all by yourself along with your wife. The opening track, The Brass Ring, is a heavy prog rocker, which gives me this Umphreys, McGee, and Rush vibe while still being unique and original on its own. Personally, just throwing this out into the universe, I feel like it could fit really well in a Mo set coupled up against Bullet. Oh. But I'd love to hear about the process of recording that album because this is, again, you're not doing this with anybody. You're playing everything on this album. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it was... Uh, so our tour got canceled because of COVID. We were out west and for the beginning of it, we were kind of keeping ahead of it. And then it, it caught us in, in Salt Lake. So we all flew home and... You know, at first, I think like everybody, no one, everyone was like, oh, two weeks, yeah, no problem. This will be over in no time and, and this and that. And then it it, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so people started streaming and all this stuff online. And, you know, Rob and Al had started streaming little acoustic shows mm -hmm. at their houses and stuff and giving lessons and anything we could do for money. So I did my first stream and all I did was just go live on Instagram and improv a bunch of vibraphone stuff over some pre-programmed drum pad beats. And it was pretty cool. You know, it was fun to do and a lot of people seemed to enjoy it. And a buddy of mine called me the next day and he's like, what, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> he's like, are you serious? Do you want to continue to do that? Like, are you going to keep streaming? And I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, look, this is how you have to do it. And he told me, everything about how to get my rig up, how I can use uh, logic and all my input channels and stuff that I have in, at home and actually stream a show on Facebook and stuff. So I started doing that and I did that a couple times and I realized I don't have enough material. You know, the, the people from busking down the house called me and, and she was like, can you do like two hours on Wednesday night? And I was like, God, two hours? No, <laughs> I, I can't. There's no way. So about a month later, I wrote a bunch of songs and started recording this stuff. And about a month later, I, I got back in touch with them. Like, okay, I can do this now. And I had just about enough material to cover two hours. And a lot of that was like my brother's songs and a bunch of just acoustic songs, Tom Waits songs, um, Billy Joel stuff. I was doing whatever I could to fill the time with these little originals. And I just fell in love with recording this stuff that I was doing, which was mainly just for the streams. And then I started getting kind of adept at, at, at doing this recording stuff and figuring out what I needed to do and how to get stuff to sound the way I wanted to sound and all that stuff. So I had four songs that I thought were really strong. I spent a lot of uh, time recording them and this is, was the original EP, the first, which has um, Edwin, the rhythms, I can't remember the name of my, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and uh, down to this. So I had these four songs that were really solid, and, and I got good recordings of them, and I sent them up to Tank Studios to have those guys, because that's where we had recorded the last two records with Mo. So I sent them to Ben at Tank Studios, I asked, can you mix these and, and ma master them? 
And they did a great job doing both of those things. And I released it on Bandcamp and uh, it did fairly well. And that whole time I was still just recording. Now I just had all this stuff, you know, and I, I made a deal with myself. I said, I'm not going to start a new project until I finish the project that I'm working on. And that was probably the biggest thing for me was to make that a rule because I up to that point have 60 things that I started and never finished just riffs and hooks and you know all this stuff that just never came to be and by the end of it I had ah, probably written probably 20 25 songs and recorded all of them so I took the all the the songs that ended up becoming below the surface and really put in a lot of time into mixing and mastering those myself. And one of the biggest things was after recording the first four songs, I realized like I need to get better at the guitar because everybody wants to hear the guitar. Like no one really wants to hear this metal album with a bunch of vibraphone because <laughs> that's just kind of weird. So I sort of needed to like offset that. So I, I learned, I put a lot of time in, learned how to play the guitar and record a guitar and make it sound good. And that was a, that was a big thing for me. It, it opened up a lot of doors and it enabled me to record a lot of different styles of music that I, I just wouldn't have been able to do without learning how to play. And then the album was basically born of of all that. It, you know, it's a reflection of everything that was kind of happening at the time, um, everything that was going on with COVID, with just the craziness that this country was starting to go through. And then even myself, my own head, and all the, the craziness that was going on in there at the time. So it was this huge cathartic thing as well for me. And um, throughout the recording, the thing, my wife Brenda just, you know, she'd come down and hang out for a bit and so she's just noticing all these little things and she started to just record her own stuff on her ipad and kind of learned taught herself sort of how to produce a song and how to make a song work so she just kept coming down in the beginning giving these little you know she'd just say like one little thing and i'm like yeah yeah and she'd go back upstairs and then i'd do it and i'd be like oh my god that worked great, you know, <laughs> and then she's giving me like little tips on, you know, you need to sing melodies, not like, cause I was doing all this like kind of monotone, less Claypool kind of vocal yep, yep. stuff. And she's, you know, if you look, take this note and sing it up here and take this one and go down and do this. And, and then all that started working. I'm like, holy cow, you know, and by the time I had finished actually putting together those songs to release it, and I'm getting ready to post it on Bandcamp and, and to get it streaming. And I realized, like, she produced half of this record. <laughs> I just <laughs> kind of without even trying. So it was it was wild. It was so much fun to record. And, um, you know, she has enough songs to release an album on her own now out of all of it. And it's just, it's crazy. <laughs> but awesome. it was a blast. Well, I know the Morons listening to this episode are thinking to themselves, you guys have gone a long time and you're not talking about the live music. So let's get into that for a little bit. You got it. With 13 studio albums to pull from and taking into account the fact that the band opens up songs into extended jams during a live performance, how does the band decide each and every night what songs are going to make the cut? Because I'm sure if you asked... 10 different Mo fans, what their idea of a killer Mo show would be, you're getting 10 different answers. Oh, absolutely. Um, 
so right now the three main set list writers are uh vin rob and al so we have a master a master song list obviously that's everything we've ever done including every cover we've ever done um every original we've ever done none of them are really crossed off but some of them you know don't don't get a, get used anymore really to sort of and right now we're we're unfortunately dealing with a cut down working list because nate is learning as many songs as he possibly can and to get comfortable on them and because we have a catalog that goes back 30 years so right there's so much stuff there are songs that he's never heard that aren't on albums that aren't you know you have to dig through live shows to find and all this stuff and and I mean, he does an amazing job and he, he doesn't want to just sort of be like, yeah, I kind of got it. Let's do it. (laughs) Cause it's just not doing justice to the material, you know, that, that, and that's first and foremost, what needs to happen. You need to do do justice to the material. You can't just throw a song out there just because we haven't done it in a while and just, it'll just sound like crap and no one is going to like that. So the things that are always taken into account are basically, obviously, the flow of the show, how you want a show to sort of go from beginning to end, where you want your peaks to be, where you want your kind of not lulls, but you know, the softer sections of the shows, you need to build in little rests because everybody can't, we're too old to play it <laughs> up tempo for three hours these days. Um, so you got to sort of write those in it. And so you have to pay attention to the keys the songs are in, as well as the tempo and the feel of these songs. You can't be jumping around tempo wise. Some time signature changes to other ones are difficult. Like it's hard to go from a song in four to a song in seven. Like trying to segue into Ghost of Ralph's Mom is it's next to impossible. The switch is just too fast. And we've tried it and failed on a couple of occasions. It's worked on a couple of occasions, but overall it's probably not the best idea. Um, and then keys. You don't want to have these weird cross keys or have like a dissonance of going from one song to another you don't we create tension but it doesn't want to be this fumble through of dissonance where nobody's really at the same place at the same time we kind of want to all move together from one point to another so if it's an easier you know we try to make the key changes sort of as basic as possible relative majors uh you know switch between relative keys or parallel keys is usually the easiest way to go and all that's taken in consideration when when they write these set lists. Sometimes they take in consider, you know, if, if we're playing in DC, we're probably going to play Kyle's song, you know, things like that. Um, if we know certain people are coming to shows, we'll we'll play s- songs for them, or if we get requests that are that mean something to some people. And you play New York City in like Canada, and, right? Well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's the one song that. It, New York City is the one song that has been played in odd places and like someone will write it and then after the show will be like, why, why did we play? What was this? Was there a reason? Um, <laughs> but, you know, we try to do like funny shit like that. And uh, but mostly the, we want to make the most kind of coherent and enjoyable song. And the set list are going to get more diverse. Um, I know right now, you know, some people are slightly bummed that we have such a short working list because they've you know had decades of us working off this you know 100 plus 150 plus song list 
that just doesn't exist. I mean, it exists. We just don't have everything down again. You know, we need, Chuck needs to get back. He's relearning songs like left and right. I mean, the guy is breaking his ass. It's amazing, amazing what he, mm -hmm. he has accomplished to this point. And it's, for Nate, he just has to learn the songs. For Chuck, he has to relearn songs. And he, he has to relearn how to play them. Because it's not the same for him as it as it used to be. His hands just do not work the same way yet that they used to. So he has to think of ways to be able to play this song again. And it's going to be different. And we have to work with these differences. And he has to accept the differences and, and just be able to kind of get through it. And the more times he gets through it, the more comfortable he gets and the better it sounds. So that's kind of what we're we're going through right now. We got, you know two guys in the band who have been just working their asses off to get this material up and running as quick as possible. You know, we've defaulted to a bunch of new covers because honestly covers can sometimes be just, we can throw it together in a sound check and it's good to go. But a lot of our own material, we want it to gel. We want Nate to fit in like really well and Chuck to get comfortable again. So that takes sound check after sound check just doing the song eight or 10 times and then going on and doing the rest of the stuff that we have to, to get that show for that night. But then we'll do that song again the next day, a bunch of times, just keep getting it. So it's under people's belts and under people's fingers. And that's where we're at right now, as far as everything that we're working and dealing with. And that's the way we need to address live shows for the moment. Well, as a fan of your live show, one thing that, blows me away every single time I see you is how the band musically communicates on stage during a live show. Obviously you're not going out there and saying, okay, so we're going to jam this part for 74 measures and then go. And it, the songs just organically unfold as you're playing them. Does that really amount to years of learning each other's musical tells on stage? Because that's not something that, you can just get into a room with a bunch of musicians and pull off so effortlessly. Um, no, it's not. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, we've played with each other for so long. I know exactly when Vin's going to fill. I know almost what he's going to play. I know when Al's bringing a solo up, I know where he's going. I know when he's going to hit the peak. I know when it's going to come back down. The same thing with Chuck, you know, I know when Rob is going to turn a segue into the next song, you just feel it. Like at this point, if it were possible, we could play a show from our basements and not have to see each other. Like it really wouldn't be all together that difficult, you know, and that's the thing we need Nate to get into. I mean, he's played with us long enough. He knows our stylings. He knows some of our tendencies and habits, but he's not at that point where you know it's like almost telecommunication like a lot of times we're like all right we need a visual cue on this and if it's from al or chuck i don't need a visual cue like i know when they're turning around and looking like i everybody kind of just knows <laughs> you know and that it, it is it, it's come from and not just honestly not just playing with each other for this long but like living with each other for this long and knowing each other for this long like I don't just know what these guys are going to do on stage. You know, I know what they do throughout an entire day from <laughs> when they wake up to when they go to sleep. So there's definitely an innate 
feeling of just knowing where everything's kind of going. And, you know, there'll be surprises every once in a while. And you kind of hope for them after a while. Like if someone tosses a curveball, you usually see everybody smile on the stage because like, yeah, that was nice. So you, you kind of want those surprises, but they don't happen all that often and, unless someone has like, just comes up with an idea on the spot. And that's happens when we're doing new stuff. Like things will change constantly on, if it's a new song constantly on a night to night basis. The solo in Blue Jeans Pizza, like Chuck's cue to get out of it has always been this, he, he just constantly changes it. Like he has one thing <laughs> that he plays that's kind of short, but then he does all these teases of the outro, mm -hmm. you know, and that is always flipping around and he's trying to do new stuff with it. So some nights like he'll be looking and everyone's like, you haven't actually played the thing yet. <laughs> so it, it can be interesting live. Some, some weird things can definitely happen. But they're usually, like I said, it's usually enjoyable and not like, oh, God. Of course. Well, over the years, you mentioned this earlier, the band has pulled off some epic covers that fit seamlessly into the band's original material. And one of my favorites I want to bring up, just for a selfishly personal reason, was the Roseland Ballroom run of 2005. Because I promised one of my closest friends that I would mention this, we went to college together, and the Roseland Ballroom run of 2005 was my wedding present from my buddy Dylan, ah. and that is the one wedding present that my wife says I have never forgotten. I don't know. My aunts and uncles have given me different amounts of money and gifts, and, and I don't remember any of that. I remember the Mo run of 2005 <laughs> at the Roseland. Good man. That weekend, the band broke out a cover of Electric Light Orchestra's Evil Woman. To this day, I feel like that version rivals the original. And now with Nate in the band, I just want to use this moment to kind of suggest that. <laughs> and maybe to say, hey, if the band wants to throw up that 2005 Roseland Ballroom run on Nugs.net, oh, I would not argue that. I would love fine. to see that there. I'm trying to think of how we were recording at the time. It is very possible that we have the show. Um, like our own copy of the show, a board copy or even a track copy is possible. The Roseland shows are always all, I mean, I miss that place I, so me much. Me too, me too. I, like seeing shows there and, and playing there. Playing there was a huge thing for me. I grew up right outside of the city and, um, you know, everybody knew the venue. Like I knew the venue growing up. My father knew the venue from ballroom dancing. And like when he was a kid, he grew up in, in Manhattan and from when it was actually a ballroom and uh playing there my, my, my friends would come down to those shows from long island my family got to come to the shows i got to bring my parents to watch me play at the roseland ballroom and like all that stuff it was such a just a special place for me and um every time we played there at least to my recollection it was an amazing show you know some of the best shows we've we've ever done have been at roseland ballroom I'm trying to think of why we did Evil Woman. That that just seems like there had to be a reason that we picked that song, and I, I can't for the life of me think of what it is. I but think you're right Al was Al was on his keys that night, and I think he was playing around with them throughout the set a little more than normal, and it just kind of came just out of came left out. field. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but but Rob's vocals on it were so goddamn perfect that the rendition just to this day. It's been like my holy grail of I hope they release it at some point. 
one of the things that we're actually doing now, especially with the re-release of Tin Cans and Car Tires, the vinyl, special vinyl re-release that's coming out, also just having been around for so long, and we're sort of kind of behind the eight ball as far as releases have gone. But that's one of the things that we're trying to do is find shows like older shows and stuff that we have really good releasable recordings of and get them out whether it's on nugs or if we end up printing it to vinyl or just anything like that we're we're definitely trying to get a lot of what some people would consider classic shows and actually make them official releases so that would be a great one to look into actually because around that time like i said we were recording a lot of stuff live so i'd have to figure out if we have that show because that would be cool if you do i promise you day one buyer right here <laughs> <laughs> what what year was it again sorry 2005 2005 and that was like the thanksgiving the weekend thanksgiving weekend yeah yep yep so you talked about this earlier there are a ton of mo songs throughout the years that are incorporated into live shows but never appeared on a studio recording so off the top of my head i'm thinking of things like george Bear Song, Tijuana Donkey Show. Those songs were on the Warts and All series. But then you have tracks like Johnny Lineup that never appeared on even a live release. They're just kind of these live breakouts. Is there a reason for this? And more importantly, do any of these tracks exist in studio form? Um, Johnny Lineup does not. That has definitely not ever been studio recorded. That was... Originally, I mean, that's an old, that song predates myself. That's like the original, the original four piece song. And it was just kind of, um, when I came into the band, we started using it sort of as a time filler to a degree because it's mostly solos. The, The words never change. The song just goes through the same exact cycle. But the interesting part about the song is the solo sections in the song. And we still there's no order to the solo sections there's no rules whoever jumps on it first is the first soloist and that starts the whole cycle that's going to happen and they just play until they're done and then it'll go back into the lyrics and the melody and then we'll come back out and someone else will just start playing it's the only song we don't like have an order of solos or who's going to solo in it or anything um, it's one of my favorite songs to solo over, so I try to jump in it as fast as I can in the beginning. <laughs> but it was always just this kind of like a mellow spot in the show where we get to relax and sort of stretch our legs for a little while. It's not fast. It's it's easy to play over. We can have guests up to play over it if we want, and they don't have to do anything except solo. And that there's a handful of songs that we've used for that over the years. And a lot of those haven't made it onto recordings. Meat has its own recording, but that's a whole different thing. But it was one of those songs that we never thought we'd do a good job of in the studio. And they just, after I had left the band as the drummer, I think it's Mazer plays on that one. But they just happened to be rolling while they were playing the song kind of to warm up or whatever. And it ended up being like 40-something minutes. 46 minutes and 10 yeah. seconds. <laughs> so it was like, well, why don't we release it as a limited edition CD? And sure. And that's how, you know, Meat came out. 
I've always wondered one thing about that one. Can you tell me the story behind Al's lyric? <laughs> that, actually, that song was also actually written before, so I don't really know. I think it's it's kind of just a tongue-in-cheek joke as to Al was a vegan when he wrote it. So right. that's my biggest guess is it's just a kind of tongue-in-cheek joke by <laughs> Al to just scream meat into a microphone <laughs> and have that be the only thing said in an entire song. We used to have a song called 30 Ought 6 that was very similar, mm -hmm. but that was more along the lines of kind of, uh, it was similar to um, uh, that Pink Floyd song, Interstellar Overdrive. Oh, yeah, okay. Where there really weren't any words. It was just like this kind of chant staring down the barrel of a 30 Ought 6, and there was a couple other lines to it, but most of the song was just this dark, open jam and you know when we used to play at broadway joe's and had to play from midnight till three or four in the morning well we could do this for 25 minutes so <laughs> that, the house lost its advantage <laughs> exactly keep the beer flowing and we're just going to keep playing and we'll stretch this one out we'll stretch this one out we'll stretch this one out and we have a full show and a lot of those songs just never kind of dawned on us to record never mind they weren't written for that reason at all yeah i feel like a song like george would make a perfect studio cut i've always felt that way that's one that i really hope the band does come around to on a studio cut for yeah that would be i don't some songs i uh, it's like that like i'm not exactly sure why we never recorded george i know it was kind of written at a weird time between albums and al sort of had this idea of connecting that you know obviously there's parts in george that are in mcbain yep and sort of to have he wanted one other song so it would kind of be a trilogy none of the songs lyrically or anything having anything to do with each other but just thematically and musically connected and the third song has never been done and you know you kind of you kind of get lost in in these things al's just this ridiculously prolific songwriter so he just keeps moving he's just does not stop and he writes and writes and writes and writes and if we don't do it he's fine with it because he's going to write 10 more songs you know in the next couple months and just keep moving and moving and moving and a lot of stuff unfortunately sort of falls by the wayside because we just don't have time to keep this song as sharp as these other songs and you know we need some kind of reaction even if we've only played the song like three or four times live there needs to be some type of reaction to it mm -hmm. if there's not it's hard to sort of put a lot more into this song and make it like yeah we're going to play this all the time some songs have built up to that point like atl and some songs just never kind of got there as it were they're still around we still sort of know them we can bring them back if need be but there's like a lot of other stuff that we want to accomplish and do so it's a give and take thing you kind of sacrifice some things to get some other new stuff is there a song that you consider to be the fan favorite motoon uh wow rebubula is huge we have a bunch of songs that basically we call the four day or four show rotation songs so we try to go three days at minimum without repeating songs. The 
four day songs are the big songs. So they include Rebubula, Buster, St. Augustine, Mexico, and there's a couple others that I can't think of off the top of my head. But those songs to me are definitely the songs that have nicknames or the songs that like ever since St. Augustine has been written, we constantly hear play God is light. Like, <laughs> uh, or some, you know, plane crash, same thing. It's every people are constantly like, too fucking high. Play too fucking high. <laughs> and so those, those are the songs that I, I mean, the songs that have reached out and grabbed people and brought them to see us. Like most of those, the four day songs are probably the songs that most people can point to and say, this is the song that, that hooked me. Like, this is the song that got me into Mo. Very true. Yeah. They consider that the, the perennial or the, the ultimate Mo song, like what Mo is. For me, it's hard because they're all, you know, I look at them all as like my family of songs. And, you know, there are ones that I, like I said, there's ones I love to play live more than other ones. There's other ones that I think came out as far better studio recordings than other ones. Some of them you love to hate. They're hate to love. <laughs> I was just going to bounce off that and say, do you have a personal favorite, even if it's just right now to play? Um, it's usually the, the newer stuff. I'll, I'll always, to me, I always like playing, obviously, Time Ed McBain. The songs that I get to solo in are just fun because I, I get to solo in them. But Skitchin' Buffalo is just awesome. Love like, it's one. a great song. I can't hear it without just remembering... You know, he's writing about the time that we lived there and it was, it's a, a song that affects all of us that we all can relate to like really closely. And it's a great song. I mean, from the intro to the vocal, the verse groove to the solo section, like all of it is just really, really cool song. And it's a blast to play. I get to play a couple different instruments in it and the feel of it is just really fun. So that's one of my favorites. Like the, a lot of the new ones uh along for the ride that's another one that's just so fun to play and um so it's it's, it's usually the new ones the the fresher ones and stuff that i really that i really enjoy and any of the ones that i consider are uh, as like a challenge you know jazz cigarette is is like a personal thing for me to have play it right and play it well because i wrote this and i want it to be good like <laughs> such a great tune <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Now, it's been a few years since we've had an official Mowdown Festival, and unfortunately, even longer since there's been a Snowdown Festival. Is there any chance that we're going to see a return of either of these major Mo festivals at any point in the future? There's always a chance. I mean, we always want to do them, and we're always trying to figure out how. We really, really want to get Mowdown back going again. We need dates it's hard to find dates for festivals these mm. days because it seems that everyone has their own specific weekend and everything. And it's hard to go back to Labor Day because ADK has been doing so well and we have a great time playing there. So it's got to be, you know, we have to find a good date in the summer and we need a, a good location. There's some new places in upstate New York that are looking really promising. We'd still use Chucky Cheo and that whole gang and it'll be somewhere in that area is, is what we're looking to do. Um, but we definitely want to do it and snow down again. It's, it's, we love it. We love doing it. 
it's going to happen again. I don't think that we can do these things on a yearly basis. There are things that we have to take advantage of when the opportunity is presented to us and be able to do it and pull it off. The amount of lead up time for stuff like this to ticket sales and announcements and mm -hmm. get, you know, getting the venues ahead of time and all this stuff, making sure the production is good and the on-site teams are good and everything. It's a lot of work. And, it, you know, we, we've always been basically what you'd consider just a family owned business. We don't have a ton of muscle behind us. It's always us and it's always on us to do it both, you know, financially and logistically. So at this point, it's difficult to make commitments to a yearly thing. But any time that we can bring it back, like I said, any opportunity we have to do it, it will be done. Um, awesome. Because we love, we love doing them. And we love going to them. <laughs> and I will say for Snowdown, as my bones get older, sleeping in the hotel across the street in Rutland, Vermont from the arena, I'm not going to lie, was a nice perk to have a nice, comfortable bed to sleep yes. in. <laughs> <laughs> I can absolutely relate. So the last sets of new Mo material came out in 2020 in the form of two albums we talked about, This Is Not We Are and Not Normal. Is the band currently working on any new studio material now that Chuck is back in the fold and with Nate there? And maybe can you share some information on when fans can expect a new Mo album? We have, well, we have four songs that were already have been playing live, two Nate songs and two Rob songs. All of them are super solid songs and, you know, we're, we're getting the legs on them and we're, and we're getting them to gel and just solidifying them. We will be going into uh, writing sessions coming up, hopefully by the end of the year. We're already kind of booked through till March. Yep. Um, and then after that is we are reassessing, you know, what we need to do for the next year and stuff. But the goal is to include studio time to start getting stuff recorded. And then the, the biggest thing is, we have to figure out the most effective way to release an album in the music environment today because it's really difficult. It's, it's hard to spend a boatload of money to go into a studio and do recordings and not know how you're going to recoup any of it because streaming's not going to do that for us. Right. We have to release something physical and Nobody buys CDs. Vinyl is doing pretty good. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I own 4,500 CDs, so <laughs> I, I, I can promise you that if CD sales ever come back, it's because of me. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing them come back, actually. I, it was a great way to release a really good-sounding physical medium. Amen. Um, and not everybody has turntables or even the system to make a turntable sound really good. It's that's just they're really expensive these days, man. You you mm -hmm. try to put together like a old seventies hi fi rig, and it's you're in deep all of a sudden. You better start buying albums because you just invested a lot of money. Yep. So we need to figure out a really good way to release a record and something that's going to have a lot of push behind it. And we are the source of that push. We have so much social media and stuff at our fingertips, but you know. We're Gen Xers, man. We're not like the slickest social media people. We do what we can and a little bit of what we're told by people who know a lot better than us. 
but that's going to be have to be a, a really major part of pushing this album so it is in the forefront of our mind recording especially since we have nate and you know you all anytime you have kind of a new you know when i came back into the band recording was on the front of the list like we need something with the new guy kind of mentality right. you know this is a whole new thing we need to get something out so it's definitely on the forefront of our mind and we're looking at next year to be able to release something at some time next year but that being said we also have to learn all our old material and do that at the same time as writing new material and it's a lot on both ends to do we're going to do our best you know one either the release a new material might get pushed back a little bit or the amount or you know our worksheet won't grow as fast as we want one or the other is going to happen we're going to really do our best to hit a happy medium of those two things and have old material and be able to offer up some type of new content next year that's the goal at least all right and for my final question i'm going to do something that might come across easy for me but i've been painstakingly thinking about this for the last i don't know two weeks leading up to this interview so it might be a <laughs> tough question for you but if i had to sum up mo's musical legacy in three songs it would be mexico four and rebubula giving props to al chuck and rob across the board so jim as a member of mo i'd like to pose the same question to you if you had to sum up the band's musical legacy of 30 plus years in three songs, which three would you choose and why? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, well, uh, Spine, really for all the reasons I, I, I had mentioned early, earlier, it was our you know, first kind of big hit, as it were. It was the first song that people really latched onto off that first record. The other songs were, were fun and everything, but Spine just, it hooked, man. It, it has a great hook. It, it's catchy. It, it kind of got us forward. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could go by writer or by sort of era. Probably Plane Crash would, would be the next one. It was probably the first major jam vehicle inside and of itself that we had you know when i first came back into the band and we were playing that song some of our solos would hit the 30 minute mark and you just didn't know what was going to happen in the middle of the solo once it started like it could go literally anywhere it could turn into another song without trying it used to go all over the place in the middle and it was it was an experience man it was like this big huge thing and you know, the song would clock in at that 30 40 minute area and it was Probably a big, another demarcation that that song made was Vin and I just playing together within a song. You know, we trade off a bunch of fills in that song. There's the groove of it and everything with that sort of Latin feel and it has to lock. And it represented a lot of what was happening at the time. And then lastly, uh, I'd probably pick something off the new record like, like Skitch and Buffalo. You know, it has that whole kind of looking back <laughs> after all this time. Lyrically, it references back to the days that, that we started and everything we went through when we started and all the people we knew back then. And musically, it is such a far cry from what we were back then as to what we actually 
do now and and how we've grown just as musicians and songwriters and all of that so that that would probably be the three three of the bigger songs throughout our career i would think well jim this has been truly an amazing experience for me thank you for many 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 years of amazing live musical memories for my wife and i and more importantly thank you for joining me tonight on my weekly mixtape Oh, thank you for having me, man. It's been a, it was a great, uh, great time being here and I'm, I'm glad, uh, I could help and thank you for coming to all these shows. That's just awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be coming to many more in the future. Don't you worry about it. Right on. And I want to also thank as always the mixtapers for tuning in tonight. Always remember to head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.